Hello, and welcome to Right Now with Ralph Martin, a podcast where author, speaker, and worldwide renewal leader, Dr. Ralph Martin, shares what the Holy Spirit is stirring up in the church right now. Words of encouragement from the Lord to strengthen you for such a time as this. We are glad you can be with us this week as we seek to encourage you for this moment in history. And now, your host, Ralph Martin. Welcome to our Pentecost mission. We're really happy we did the Advent mission, we did the Lenten mission on holiness and growth and union with the Lord. And we're really excited now to be doing a Pentecost mission where we're going to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the real blessings of kind of getting into these YouTube videos and these uh, missions is uh, we're really able to be united with brothers and sisters all over the world. And it gives us such a feel of the body of Christ and the, uh, the universal church and how there's brothers and sisters in every country of the world uh, who are trying to follow Jesus and love him and are trying to deal with the uh, various challenges that we have in all our different countries. So... And I'm going to talk tonight about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and what that means. I'm going to talk about the first Pentecost. I'm going to talk about what happened at the first Pentecost. I'm going to talk about how that can happen and is happening today. So let's begin. You know, one of the things that a lot of Catholics don't really know is that every single pope from St. John the Twenty-Third up until Pope Francis has been fervently calling out to God for a new Pentecost. For example, way back in 1962, when St. John XXIII was calling for Vatican II, he asked the entire church to pray for a new Pentecost, that the Lord would renew his wonders in our day as by a new Pentecost. And, you know, one of the things that's really clear is that John XXIII wasn't just hoping for new documents, although we got some really good documents, He was really hoping for the power of God to rejuvenate, to enliven, to empower the church. He wasn't just hoping for theoretical statements. He was hoping for something that would connect us more vigorously with God. Then Pope Paul VI continued crying to God for a new Pentecost. He said, more than once we've asked ourselves what the greatest needs of the church are. What is the primary and ultimate need of our beloved and holy church? This need is the Spirit. The church needs her eternal Pentecost. She needs fire in her heart, words on her lips, a glance that is prophetic. Then, of course, Pope John XXIII many times called for the power of the Holy Spirit to enliven the church. One time he said, over the years I've often repeated the summons to the new evangelization. I do so again now, especially in order to insist that we must enkindle in ourselves the impetus of the beginnings and allow ourselves to be filled with the ardor of the apostolic preaching which followed Pentecost. We must revive in ourselves the burning conviction of Paul who cried out, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Then Pope John Paul II went on to say, This passion will not fail to start in the church a new sense of mission which cannot be left to a group of specialists but must involve the responsibility of all the members of the people of God. So uh, the language here is really strong. 
rekindle the impetus of the beginnings. Allow ourselves to be filled with the ardor of the apostolic preaching, which followed Pentecost. Revive in ourselves the burning conviction. So we're, we're talking about the need for fire, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the fire of Pentecost. Pope Benedict XVI many times at various World Youth Days and other places would often call for a new Pentecost. When he was in Australia for the World Youth Day, he said, Together we shall invoke the Holy Spirit, confidently asking God for the gift of a new Pentecost, for the church and for humanity in the third millennium. When he visited New York City and came to St. Patrick's Cathedral, he said something really strong. He said it in such a gentle voice, people didn't get the power of what he was saying. But listen to this. Let us implore from God the grace of a new Pentecost for the church in America. May tongues of fire, combining burning love of God and neighbor with zeal for the spread of Christ's kingdom, descend on all present. Pope Francis doubled down on all this. I remember being at the uh, 50th anniversary of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Conference in uh, the Olympic Stadium in Rome uh, four or five years ago. And I remember the organizers asked Pope Francis if he would kind of give them a letter or a statement, you know, saying something positive. And he said, I don't want to send you a letter. I want to come myself, but I want you to sing my favorite song that I learned when I was in Argentina. So... Pope Francis decided to can't come. I, I remember he drove into the stadium in his Ford Focus. I was pretty inspired by that. I felt like, wow, there's a real simplicity here. There's a real, a real kind of humbleness before God. And I, I felt really inspired by it. And then he came up to the stage and he told the story about when he first met the Catholic Charismatic Renewal in Argentina. He thought it was a school for samba and he thought they were crazy. But then he began to talk to people about the changes that were happening in their life. And he said, you know what? This is something that the whole church needs. So he went on to say in his talk, I want you to share the grace of being baptized with the Spirit with the whole church. Uh, I think a year or so later at an international conference for priests in Rome, he asked all the priests present to make sure that Life in the Spirit seminars, which is a way of introducing people to uh, a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit, be offered in every parish, diocese, and seminary in the church. And then he knelt down and he asked everybody, everybody to pray for him for more of the Holy Spirit for himself. And, and this reminds me of something that St. John Paul II did. He gave a meditation on Mary's role in the upper room. And he, it's a really a beautiful meditation. He said, Mary was already somebody more overshadowed by the Holy Spirit than anybody. Uh, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and she became the mother of Jesus, the mother of God. But she wasn't in the upper room just praying for the other hundred or so disciples. But she was also praying for herself for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, for her new role now as mother of the disciples, mother of the church. So when we're thinking about Pentecost, when we're thinking about the Holy Spirit, Many of us probably that I'm speaking to tonight already experience uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, blessings of the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Uh, there's more for the new time that we're facing right now in the church. There's more for what we're facing in our own lives. When, when the apostles began to get persecuted in Acts chapter 4, uh, they prayed and they said, Lord, 
reach out your hand to do signs and wonders while we preach the gospel with boldness. So even though they had already received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, uh, they were asking for more of the Holy Spirit to face a time of persecution. And we are entering a time of persecution right now, and we do need more of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at what we can learn from the first Pentecost to see what it can help us to experience a new Pentecost today or a new renewal of Pentecost today. Well, in each of the four Gospels, Jesus, John the Baptist speaks about Jesus as the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to go through all four Gospels, but in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, John the Baptist is calling people to repentance, and he's telling them not to be presumptuous about being children of Abraham, uh, but they really need to show the fruits of repentance. And he says, even now the axe lies at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I am baptizing you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's really remarkable when this greatest blessing of the coming of Messiah is being talked about, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being plunged into God himself. Judgment is also being spoke about. It's the same thing that happened when Jesus was a baby and he was presented at the temple and Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and he says, this child is going to be a cause for the rise and the fall of many in Israel. He's going to reveal the secrets of heart. He's going to be a sign of contradiction. So John the Baptist is sort of like echoing that right here with Jesus as an adult about to begin his public ministry. Same kind of thing. When Jesus comes close, there's a choice to be made. Uh, and, and we need to either really surrender ourselves to Jesus and be baptized in the Holy Spirit, or there's a grave danger of distancing ourselves from the Lord, of holding back, of of not repenting wholeheartedly, of not surrendering to Jesus wholeheartedly, and, and the risk of judgment. A really important text is in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. Now, this is Luke's account of uh, just before the ascension is going to happen. This is another account. Actually, the apostles will look, that, will look at that in just a minute. But here's Jesus again explaining the scriptures to the disciples. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And, you know, when you wonder about the apostles in the day of Pentecost preaching, where did they get what to preach? They got it directly from Jesus. Jesus several different times explained to them how to interpret the Old Testament scriptures, how all the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to him. Jesus says, thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. It's really interesting that Jesus tells the disciples what they're supposed to preach. They're supposed to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we're not hearing a lot of preaching about repentance for the forgiveness of sins today. We're hearing a lot about irregular relationships rather than grave sin. We're supposed to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, 
but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This is really significant. They've had the best teaching anybody's ever had. They've had the best spiritual direction anybody's ever had. They've had the best apostolic supervision that anybody's ever had. They've had the best Bible study that anybody's ever had. The person who wrote the Bible was giving them instruction about the Bible. And yet they still don't get it. And Jesus knows they don't have what they need for it all to come together and ignite a fire in their heart. So he tells them to stay in the city, first novena, until they receive power from on high. So correct doctrine is really essential, but it's not enough. Orthodoxy is really essential, but it's not enough. Correct and reverent celebration of the liturgy is really essential, but it's not enough. There's something that Jesus is referring to as power from on high, an energy, a power, a fire, a, a person dwelling in us. You know, Jesus did say that it's going to be better for you that I go away because when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll do things that can't happen for you right now. I'm limited in my physical body. I'm with you right now. But the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to allow me and the Father to dwell in you and to speak to you and to remind you of things and to guide you and to give you power to be a witness. Well, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and he's giving him last instructions. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs after he had suffered, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While meeting with them, he enjoined them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, about which you have heard me speak. We just heard him speak about it in Luke chapter 24. But in a few days... You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they had gathered together, they asked them, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still expecting the Lord to restore the kingship to Israel, to kick out the Romans, to take over Jerusalem. They still don't get it, despite all that Jesus has done to try to help them understand. Then Jesus says, It's not for you to know the times or seasons but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, which is how the rest of the Acts of the Apostles unfold. Well, they, they spend nine days in the upper room, uh, 120, Mary and the disciples. And on the last day of the novena, Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit came in a great wind and a great crowd gathered and flames of fire appeared over their head. And the Holy Spirit saw fit to record in Scripture one of the explanations that one of the bystanders gave. He said, they must be drunk. Now, it's really interesting that there's a visibility to Pentecost. There's things you can see. There's things you can hear. There's things that you can observe. There's a difference in people. So when, when they said they must be drunk, Peter got up and said, we're not drunk. And he just preached the gospel. He told them about the Messiah. He told them about Jesus being crucified. He told them about him being raised from the dead. He told them about at the right hand of the Father. Now pouring out the Holy Spirit, which you see and hear. So Peter's pointing to something visible, something that's happened, something that's changed. 
They're speaking in tongues. They're praising God. They're, they're glorifying God. They're proclaiming the truth. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, this is an extraordinary response. Why did they respond that way? Because Peter was preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter was preaching with the anointing of God. Peter was preaching boldly, courageously, directly, authoritatively. There was an anointing on his preaching that pierced their hearts. And one of the uh, cardinals I know in Rome one time said, you know, we preach 3,000 sermons and nobody's converted. Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 are converted. May that be more and more the case today as the fire of the Holy Spirit falls on us and all of us become more bold in our proclamation, more anointed in our obedience to the Lord. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call to himself. Now this is pretty significant. This is the definitive papal interpretation of the meaning of Pentecost. How should we respond to what God is doing and pouring out his Holy Spirit? How should we respond to the death and resurrection of Jesus? How should we respond to him ascending to the Father? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The only way sin can be really forgiven is not by slaughtering animals in the temple but by the blood of Jesus Christ. All those sacrifices, all those slaughtered animals were four types of the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And we need the sacrifice of Jesus. We need the blood of Jesus to be cleansed of our sins. We also need to be actually joined to the body of Jesus. St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians being one body, one spirit with the Lord. And the way that happens is through faith, through repentance, through holy baptism, being joined to the body of Christ. So what did they have to repent of? They probably had to repent of a lot of ordinary sins, grave sins, but ordinary sins. But they also had to repent of unbelief. They had to repent about not believing in Jesus. They had to repent about not accepting the testimony that God the Father was giving to Jesus through the signs and wonders he was doing through Jesus. They had to repent of uh, not believing the testimony of the apostles. They had to Repent about not believing the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But here's the really important thing. A lot of times people have said in the history of the church that, well, yes, that was really special what happened on the day of Pentecost, but uh, that was just to get the church started, and we don't really need that today. We've got the structure, we've got the magisterium, we've got the sacraments, we've got things all worked out. We don't really need that same kind of energy, that same kind of power. Or sometimes other theologians said, well, that's true. Pentecost was really important, but that's something for the leaders. That's something for great saints. That's not for ordinary people, but that's not true. This is the definitive interpretation of the meaning of Pentecost. This promise is for you, it's for your children, and it's for everyone whom God is drawing to himself. This is for every single person listening tonight. It's for every single person not listening tonight. It's for every single person on the face of the earth. The whole reason why God created the human race is to be one with him. And the only way we can be one with him is to 
repent and believe for the forgiveness of our sins, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. But then Peter says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. If that was true in the first century, it is for sure true today. Brothers and sisters, save yourself from this corrupt generation. The world is becoming a place of bondage, a place of brainwashing, a place of oppression, a place where demons are in control. We need to save ourselves from the corrupt generation by fully embracing our Lord Jesus Christ, fully embracing every word he speaks, fully embracing who he really is, really surrendering, really falling at his feet, saying, Jesus, you are the Lord. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. People can mechanically recite the words, Jesus is Lord. But they can't say Jesus is Lord with understanding, with sincerity, with fervor, with conviction, except that the Holy Spirit illumines to us who Jesus really is and moves us to surrender to him and fall at his feet. May we all do so. Now, every time that a new group of Christians are brought into the church, the apostles are tremendously concerned that they come into the same experience that the apostles and the disciples did and Mary did on the day of Pentecost. And one of the things that the Catechism of the Catholic Church says is that the way that Pentecost is perpetuated in the Catholic Church is through the sacrament of confirmation. Now, one of the sad things about the experience of the sacrament of confirmation is for many, many young people today, confirmation is the last thing they're being made to do before they're going to be allowed to stop going to church. A lot of times their parents are dropping them off at church, but not going to church themselves. Uh, A lot of times they're getting confirmed because everybody in the seventh grade or eighth grade gets confirmed or everybody at a certain age gets confirmed or there's pressure from grandparents or parents. And and we know that there's something that happens in the sacrament of confirmation, ex opere operato. Grace is given. But we also know that unless there's a personal disposition, a receptivity to the graces of the sacrament, it oftentimes doesn't bear any fruit. And the sad, really one of the elephants in the living room in the Catholic Church today is, is, is how the sacrament of confirmation is not perpetuating Pentecost in the lives of those who receive it. Fortunately, there's a lot of attention being given to this today. I was just a sponsor for a, a grandson who, who got confirmed a couple nights ago. And I have to say the program in his parish was really good. He, he really wanted the sacraments. He really understood it. He was really ready to declare himself a disciple of Jesus. And I know that many, many others who received it a couple nights ago did too. So that's really good. Okay, Acts chapter 8. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had accepted the word of God, they sent them, Peter and John, who went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for had not yet fallen on any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now we know that if you're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. 
but there obviously was something that didn't happen in the fullness with which the apostles accepted it to happen. You know, a lot of times the language being used is the Holy Spirit fell on them. Here it says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. So obviously they had the Holy Spirit, they're baptized in the name of Jesus, but something more was supposed to happen. So Peter and John uh, laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon the magician saw that the Spirit was conferred by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he, again, the magician saw something happen. He saw a change in, in the baptized Christians that, in Samaria. He, he saw something kind of happen. When Simon saw that the Spirit was conferred by the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this power too, so that anyone upon whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is where we get the word simony, which is the grave sin of selling holy things for money. Chapter 10. Peter is told by the Lord that he needs to go into the household of a Gentile and tell them about Jesus. Peter protests, saying, Lord, I'm a good Jew, I can't do that. And the Lord says, Peter... I'm expanding your understanding of what it means to be a follower of mine. This is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. So Peter goes to Cornelius and his household with a group of people with him, a group of Jewish believers. And he starts speaking to Cornelius about what happened to Jesus and who Jesus is and how he died for us. And he rose again from the dead. And then it says, while Peter was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the word. The circumcised believers who had accompanied Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit should have been poured out on the Gentiles, for they could hear them speaking in tongues and glorifying God. Then Peter responded, <clears throat> Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have re received the Holy Spirit even as we have? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. There's, an, there's a specific recognition that what happened to Cornelius and his household was the exact same thing that happened to the disciples on the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit even as we have. Again, there's a visibility to it. There's a manifest, manifestation of gifts of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that's, I'd say, almost universally a manifestation of the Holy Spirit is glorifying God, praise, uh, jubilation, uh, rejoicing, the joy that comes from knowing the Lord, the joy that comes from the forgiveness of sins, the joy that comes from God's love poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter gets into trouble for baptizing Gentiles. And back at headquarters, he has to defend himself. And it's really interesting what he says. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as it had upon us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord. Now, in John's gospel, we read Jesus explaining all the things the Holy Spirit was going to do when it was given to them. And one of the things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to do was remind you of what I've said. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that. You know, oftentimes we're in a situation and, and, and oh, the word of God will be recalled to our mind and we'll understand something about the situation we're in. So we need the Holy Spirit to remind us 
of what Jesus has said, which means that we've heard it once at least, that we've been reading the scripture, and we know the word of God to some extent, so that the Holy Spirit has something there to remind us of. I remember the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he gave to us, when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to be able to hinder God? When they heard this, they stopped objecting and glorified God, saying, God has then granted life-giving repentance to the Gentiles too. There's so much here. I didn't notice this for a number of years, but Peter's saying, if God gave them the same gift he gave to us when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did the disciples first come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when they received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost? Yes and no. Before, they sort of believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, although they didn't completely know who he was. They, they, they didn't believe in him enough to stay at the cross. They didn't believe him enough not to be afraid of the Jews. They didn't have the depth of conviction that allowed them yet to proclaim him, but Jesus told them not to even try till they received the Holy Spirit. But when they received the Holy Spirit, they got who Jesus was. They got that he was Lord. They got that he was the fulfillment of the scripture. They got that he was all power and authority had been given to them and they were being sent out on a mission. Now, there's a lot of Catholics in the church today who sort of believe in Jesus. Maybe they believe even correct doctrine about Jesus, but it hasn't been ignited in their heart to give them a desire to praise him or glorify him or be a witness to him. Now, it's really important these days particularly that we stir up the gift of the Spirit because Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. That's in the context of persecution. We're again entering a time where there's pressure. People call it soft persecution, where there's a lot of pressure on us not to identify ourselves as Christians, not to defend the truth about marriage and family life, uh, not to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. There's a lot of pressure for us to be silent about or even deny what God has revealed to us about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and how the whole human race is being called to faith in Jesus. The whole human race is being called to repentance. So we really need to be strengthened so we don't end up denying Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to be faithful witnesses to him, even in a time of persecution. Then he goes on to say, if God gave them the same gift he gave to us when we came to believe in the Lord Jesus, who was I to be able to hinder God? When they heard this, they stopped objecting and glorified God, saying, God has then granted life-giving repentance to the Gentiles too. Now, repentance has sort of a negative connotation. Oh, darn it, repentance. I remember a little book written by a Mother Basilea Schlink called Repentance, the Joy-Filled Life. Repentance is life giving. Refusal to repent, holding on to our sins, holding on to our disordered attachments, holding on to our unbelief is deadening. It's deadening the soul, it's deadening the spirit, and it's risking eternal death. There's a joy that comes from repenting. 
There's a joy from acknowledging the truth about our lives and asking God for forgiveness. There's a joy about repenting of, of not surrendering to the Lord, not believing what he's teaching. Acts chapter 19. Paul comes across a group of disciples in Ephesus, and he asks them sort of an unusual question. He says, Have you received, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And then the disciples answer a surprising answer. They say, we never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So then Paul, you know, being a good evangelist, is going to try to find out where they're coming from. So he knows, he knows how to take them from where they're coming from to where he knows they need to go. So he says, how were you baptized? So they say, well, we were baptized with the Baptist and the John the Baptist. And so Paul says, okay, I get it. I know where you're at. I need to now tell you that John wanted his disciples to believe in Jesus. He was preparing the way for Jesus. And you need now to understand who Jesus is and believe in him and be baptized. So Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is in Jesus. When they heard this, they heard the truth, spoken in love, spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 men. That's Acts chapter 19. Again, every single time we see a new group of converts come into the church, the apostles are very concerned that they come into the same experience they had in the day of Pentecost. And every single time, there's some kind of visibility, some kind of manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit that falls on them. Now, you might say, why did this stop happening in this kind of way every time a new people come into the church? Well, you know, after, after the, the church became like legally okay in the Roman Empire, and after big tribes of, of pagans began to come into the church because their leader accepted it and it became sort of like uh, the favored religion of the empire, uh, evangelization kind of became something really different. It became more institutional, it became more bureaucratic, it became more conventional. And a lot of people who came into the church didn't come because of personal conversion. Uh, in, in missionary territories, there's often been a greater manifestation of the Holy Spirit, but and and certainly in the lives of saints, you know, like uh, you know, we just read recently about Saint Philip Neri, the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, uh, kind of coming into his soul and having a fire in his chest, even expanding his chest and expanding his heart. Uh, so we read about Teresa of Avila telling our nuns that. Uh, May this holy madness come upon us. And when one person begins to praise, the others start praising. I mentioned Acts chapter 4 when they're being threatened with persecution. And they, they pray, Lord, take note of their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with all boldness. As you stretch forth your hand to heal and signs and wonders are done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And as they prayed, the place where they were gathered shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then, of course, Paul talks to Timothy, and he tells him, you know, fan into a flame the gift you received when I laid my hands on you. Probably the gift of ordination, but this is applicable to all of us. 
We need to stir into a flame, fan into flame, the graces we received in baptism and confirmation. But also, Thomas Aquinas says that sometimes there's a new sending of the Spirit that the Lord wants to do when there's a a, a new mission opening up for us or a new phase in our life. He talks about there being different sendings of the Spirit. So I'd like to encourage us tonight as we uh, reflect on what it means to be baptized in the Spirit that uh, there's more that the Lord has for us. If the Lord had more for Mary and her new role and her new mission, he certainly has more for us as we're facing a new situation in the world and the church today. I'd like to uh, ask us to uh, pray for the Lord to send more of his Holy Spirit to us. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI says this. He says, The ultimate thirst of man cries out for the Holy Spirit. He and he alone is the fresh water without which there is no life. He is God's gift. He is God sharing himself with man. He's the only gift worthy of God. That's why Christian prayer does not beg for just anything. Rather, it begs for the gift of God. That is God himself. It begs for him. And I think about Luke chapter 11 where Jesus says, Your earthly fathers as bad as you are when your son asks for bread, you don't give him a stone when he Ask for an egg, you don't give them a scorpion. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? So we want these Pentecost talks not just to be information, but we want them to be invitations. Invitations to let the Word of God stir up hunger and desire in your heart for more of the Holy Spirit. Peter Kraft, who's written, I think, I don't know, was it 52 or 72 books? You know, he's a philosopher at Boston College. He said this. We need the release, the empowering, the anointing of the Spirit. Such empowerment is probably what the New Testament means by baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to happen at confirmation. It usually does not. Millions of confirmed Catholics receive it afterwards, usually in charismatic prayer meetings or seminars. The charismatic movement in the Catholic Church is obviously God's answer to Pope John XXIII's prayer for a new Pentecost. Popes Paul VI and John Paul II both blessed it but said that it will fulfill its purpose only when, like the early liturgical movement, it ceases to have a separate identity of its own and is absorbed into the whole church. In other words, every Catholic should be a charismatic, baptized in the Spirit, empowered like the Apostles. Now, this doesn't mean that we all have to join a movement. Uh, Pete Barak, Peter Herbeck, Dan, Dr. Mary Healy, all of us have been really blessed by our involvement in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. But this isn't just something that everybody's supposed to join, but the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, Cardinal Sunas used to say this, is a witness in the church to what belongs to the whole church. That's what Peter Kreeft is saying here. That's what Cardinal Cantalamesa is saying, that This is a grace for everybody. It's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. This is for you, it's for your children, it's for everybody that God is drawing to himself. It doesn't have to happen through a prayer meeting. Uh, It it happened for me uh, on the last day of a Curcio retreat I made when I was a senior at Notre Dame. I didn't Never heard of baptism in the Spirit. But as I opened my heart to the Lord, as I repented, as I surrendered, the fire of God's love came into my soul. Uh, other people have experienced this on Ignatian retreats, or uh, there's lots of things now which is help, which are helping people. Various movements of renewal, 
not just the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, but uh, Christ Renews His Christ Life, uh, Alpha, just a divine renovation. All these movements of evangelization know that it's really important for people to experience the Holy Spirit. So I'm not asking you to kind of join a movement. I'm asking you to join the mover, to join the Holy Spirit, and ask for him to kind of be released into your soul. Last quote here is with Father Cantalamesa, who just got named the cardinal. It is with infinite sadness that I see that the charismatic renewal has ended up confined to one part of the church only and regarded by the rest as something so alien that they feel fully justified in keeping well clear of it. Let me say again, the charismatic renewal was born to renew the whole church, not just one part of it. Paul VI said it was an opportunity for the church. The charismatic renewal was born with a powerful drive to return to the essentials of the Christian life, the Holy Spirit, the Lordship of Christ, the Word of God, the sacraments, the charisms, prayer, evangelization. This is the secret of its explosive power. It simply accentuates what should be common and normal for every baptized person. Baptism in the Spirit is not a human invention. It's a divine invention. It's the grace of a new Pentecost. It's not about charismatic renewal, inventing baptism in the Spirit. It's a grace. It depends on the Holy Spirit. It's a grace meant for all the baptized. The external signs can be different, but in its essence is an experience meant for all the baptized. Just this, just a couple months ago, just in Lent, Cardinal Cantalamesa, in his first Lenten mission, said it again to the whole Roman Curia, said it again to all the cardinals in Rome, said it again, we desperately need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, ask God tonight to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. If you have been baptized in the Spirit, ask the Lord to fan into a flame. Uh, the gift that you've received and let it ignite in your heart and bring you into deeper contemplative gifts, bring you into a deeper thirst for holiness and bring you to a greater zeal for sharing the gospel. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal Ministries, part of the Renewal Podcast Network. For more information about Renewal Ministries, visit our website at renewalministries.net. Join us next week to find strength, hope, and courage for the Christian journey. Until next time, this is Right Now with Ralph Martin.